Hello, and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 96, St. Leo III. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. Hey everyone, today's Pope St. Leo III was born in Rome. He was the son of Atiopius and Elizabeth. <laughs> the father's name seems much harder to pronounce than the mother's. And unlike some of our past popes, including Adrian I, the strange-sounding name of his father seems to suggest that Leo came from a less aristocratic and a more humble origins. Indeed, it sounds almost uh, Lombardish. Leo entered the papal administration in the Treasury Department, and he was ordained a subdeacon and later the Cardinal Priest of Santa Susana in Rome. The Liber Pontificalis, which according to Horace Mann was a contemporaneous account, uh, says that he spent his time in the Papal Treasury as a great almsgiver and fundraiser for the poor. And consequently, everyone loved him. He was humble, holy man. He was devoted to the scriptures, to care of the poor. He was likewise a major collaborator with Pope Adrian, handling the financial aspects of the papacy and participating in the renovation of the city of Rome that Pope Adrian undertook. And that popularity made him immediate choice of the Roman clergy and the people to be pope. And in fact, the very day Pope Adrian I was buried, December 26, 795, St. Leo III was unanimously elected pope and was consecrated the next day. Like his predecessors, Leo immediately sent news of his election along with a promise of friendship to Charlemagne, the great king of the Franks, who was such a major player in last week's episode. Charlemagne seems to have been a little concerned, however, about the speed of St. Leo's election, and he admonished the new pope to always act in accord with canon law. And he writes, For just as I entered into a pact of holy paternity with the most blessed father, your predecessor, thus with your blessedness, I desire to establish an inviolable contract of the same faith and charity, so that with divine grace as advocate by the prayers of your apostolic holiness, the apostolic blessing might follow me everywhere, and God granting that the seed of the Holy Roman Church should be always defended by our devotion. Indeed, may the prudence of your authority everywhere cleave to the canonical decrees and always follow the statutes of the Holy Fathers, so that the examples of complete holiness might shine forth clearly to all in your manner of life, and the exhortation of holy warnings might be heard from your mouth so that your light might shine before men, and they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You read in this and you see, okay, he's praising Leo for his papacy, but he's also warning him, you should, you should stick firm to the canons of the law of the church, which at this time, based on an agreement with previous Carolingian kings, said that there was a certain standard by which the Pope should be elected. And it seems like Charlemagne's concerned that that wasn't followed because he was elected so quickly. At the same time, he sent him a bunch of treasure as a gift for his consecration. So this Leo used to help continue the renovation of the churches and the buildings of the city of Rome, which his predecessor had undertaken. Now, I just said everyone liked St. Leo, but that's not the case, actually. Not everyone did. On April 25th, 799, Leo was physically attacked as he was headed to San Silvestro in Capite to lead a liturgical procession. The attackers were actually family members of Pope Adrian I. Pascal, his nephew, was the main aggressor, and he was assisted by a man named Campulius. And the reason for the attack is unclear. Now, some have suggested that his governing style was too strict and top-down. Others suggest that they were jealous that a commoner had become the pope. 
And the two men pulled him off his horse. They tore his clothes. They tried to gouge out his eyes and cut off his tongue, which was a, a common punishment or way of attacking someone this time. But they were unable to do this on the street, so they dragged him into the church and then tried to continue cutting off his tongue and gouging out his eyes. Then, as night fell, they hid the Pope in a nearby monastery. But a group of faithful rescued him that evening and brought him first to St. Peter's and then spirited him away to Spoleto. The Liber Pontificalis relates that when they found him, he could see and speak, and they took that to be miraculous. Though it's unclear from the historical record if it was just merely the product of the inability of the attackers to really finish off the job of mutilating him. But regardless, it seems pretty awful. In the midst of this attack, the neighboring area around Rome pledged its loyalties to the Pope. But the situation in Rome itself was so bad that the Pope needed backup, so he went off to find Charlemagne, and he arrived in Paderborn in July of 799. Now, this meeting is actually portrayed by a Carolingian poet, and it's actually one of the first epic poems of the Middle Ages. It's called Carolus Magnus et Leo Papa. And the poet describes Charlemagne rushing to kiss his feet and marvel at the amazing sight of seeing new eyes in an old head and hearing the loud, renewed speech of a torn-out tongue. The king of the Franks, of course, would side with the Holy Father. He, he loved the church. He loved the, the Pope. And he got ready to go back with him to Rome and to set things right. But in the meantime, his enemies in Rome began spreading accusations against Leo, accusing him of adultery and perjury. Now, these accusations were false. But again, this was common practice at the time. As soon as you had a grief with someone, you trumped up all these charges against him. They were made to kind of help cover the tracks of Pascal and Campulus and to justify their actions. Charlemagne ordered an investigation, and he sent Leo home with an escort to make sure he arrived safely in Rome. Leo was greeted at the Milvian Bridge by representatives of all of Rome and welcomed home in triumph. And once in the city, Leo III said Mass at St. Peter's and started the investigation into the charges against him. But no one corroborated or supported Pascal and Campulus, so they in turn were arrested and exiled to France. In November of the year 800, Charlemagne himself came to Rome. Alcuin of York, his great ecclesiastical advisor, had written to the Frankish king that Rome, which had been touched by the discord of brethren, still keeps the poison which has been instilled into her veins, and thus compels your venerable dignity to hasten from your sweet abodes in Germany in order to repress the fury of this pestilence. So Leo comes out to meet Charlemagne at the 12th mile marker outside the city, which is seems like a small detail but in reality is incredibly important it's a dignity which was usually reserved to the pope or to the byzantine emperor which as we'll see has tremendous tremendous significance as to what's going to happen next the 12th mile marker usually symbolizes the 12 apostles and going out to meet someone at a particular mile marker as we've saw in past episodes indicates their dignity or their value or how uh, incredibly pleased the person is to see you and once Charlemagne was in Rome, he reopened the investigation into the conduct of Pope Leo. But no one stood to accuse Leo of the crimes that he had previously investigated. And Leo himself, before all the assembled nobles, swore an oath on the Book of the Gospels that he was innocent of the crimes against him. Now this is a bigger deal and a bigger problem than you might think. The canonists at the time, including and especially Alcuin of York, noted that the king of the Franks or even under his title as Patrician of Rome, did not have the authority to judge the Pope, not only in theological areas, but also in criminal and civil areas. Charlemagne had to walk a very fine line to try and straighten things out, but also trying to respect papal authority. But by intervening, he also made a point that he probably wasn't just some king. 
Anyway, by December 23rd, the Pope was totally cleared and could go back to business as usual. But business as usual, however, meant a major tectonic shift in the politics of Europe just two days later. Charlemagne arrived at the Basilica of St. Peter's dressed in the garments of an ancient Roman patrician, and he walked down the main aisle to the front of the church for Christmas Mass. After Mass, while Charlemagne was praying in front of the tomb of St. Peter and kneeling on a large porphyry disc, which you can still see in St. Peter's today, Leo III descended from the altar. As a chronicler from the time describes it, on the most holy day of the Nativity of the Lord, when the king rose from praying at Mass before the tomb of blessed Peter the Apostle, Pope Leo placed a crown on his head, and all the Roman people cried out to Charles Augustus, crowned by God, great and peace-giving emperor of the Romans, life and victory. And after the laudation, he was adored by the Pope in a manner of the ancient princes, and the title of patrician being set aside, he was called Emperor and Augustus. So this is the start of the famous Holy Roman Empire. Charles the Great Charlemagne is the first Holy Roman Emperor. But in order to understand what has happened here, we really need to take a second to remember how we got here. Now, first, you have to remember just how much the Roman Empire dominated the cultural landscape. I know it's technically been a non-entity in the West for about 400 years now, but it still was massively important. We've been calling the Empire of the East the Byzantine Empire, but that's really a historical distinction. They were still calling themselves the emperors of Rome, the Augusti, even though they hadn't a direct political control of Rome for centuries. So it was a strange thing to have a Europe without a Roman Empire in charge. It had been the case for so many centuries. The past century or so seemed an anomaly, and eventually the empire had to return to maintain civilization. Now more immediately, there were issues in the East as well. If you remember from the last episode, in 780 AD, Emperor Leo IV died and his son Constantine VI succeeded. However, he was too young to rule in his own right, so his mother, the Empress Irene, served as his regent. She was against iconoclasm, and she helped to call the Second Council of Nicaea, so that's good. But then in 792, when her son started getting restless, she had him mutilated and killed so that he, she could then be the sole ro- ruler. So that's not so good. That's not the greatest example of motherhood. And by 800, Irene was ruling the Eastern Roman Empire by herself, which several Westerners claimed was illegitimate. The Roman Empire couldn't be ruled by a woman, and so the title of Roman Emperor must be open. So with this as the background, we see that what happened in 800 was an attempt to transfer the title of Roman Emperor from the East to the West. And to accompany it, Charlemagne sought the Empress Irene's hand in marriage. This never ended up working out, though, so what it means is that the West saw itself as re-establishing the Roman Empire, but this time on a more holy foundation, blessed and sanctified by the Pope who crowned the Emperor. And while there are a lot of reasons to agree with the traditional cynical jibe about the Holy Roman Empire being neither holy nor Roman nor an empire, at this moment, that isn't necessarily true. Sure, there are lots of political machinations behind the scenes, And you better believe Charlemagne wasn't surprised when the Pope came down to crown him. But what they were setting out to do was genuinely noble in intention. They did want a holy empire. Charlemagne did love the church and ancient Rome. And for a civilization which has been going through nothing but decay, disorder, and death for 300 years, to the point that the buildings were collapsing around them in Rome, this was a real spark of light. Here was a king who had brought peace, order, learning, art, and faith back to Western Europe. It's for good reason that we call this period the Carolingian Renaissance, the rebirth. But like any political reality, it will decay. The Holy Roman Empire will decay. 
and will become corrupted, but at least at this moment, it seems like it's a good and holy endeavor. So there you have it, Christmas Day 800. It's the easiest date to remember in history, and it's the start of the Holy Roman Empire, and it's going to last for a thousand years, until 1806 when it was technically dissolved by Austrian Emperor Francis II. From the outside, this whole transition seems beautiful and smooth, but there certainly were bumps in the road. The Pope definitely wanted to impress to the new emperor that he was the one who made him the emperor. And the emperor wanted to impress to the Pope that, well, he was the emperor now. But they seemed to have worked it out by the time that Charlemagne left Rome in Easter of 801. After Charlemagne left, Leo enjoyed the peace and prosperity that followed by working very hard, restoring many churches in Rome and the surrounding area. He continued to work with Charlemagne and even visited him in 705, but we can skip some of those details. Really, we have one more big event to talk about in his papacy, and it will bring to the fore a phrase which is going to be causing problems for the church and continues to cause problems up to the present time. It's the filioque. Now, you may have never heard of the filioque, but if you are Catholic, you say it every Sunday. In the creed, there is a line which states, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, that last phrase, and the Son, is translated from the Latin word filioque, and it is not present in the original creed of the First Council of Constantinople, which is where the rest of the creed comes from. So the term itself and the theology associated with it probably developed fairly early on in church history. St. Maximus the Confessor seems to think there wasn't any problem with it, and it seems to have been known by him. But gradually over time, the Western churches, particularly in Spain and then increasingly in Frankish territory, began inserting the word into the creed when chanted, to the point that some of the Frankish bishops thought it was the original text of the creed. Last episode, when Charlemagne tried to have the Second Council of Nicaea declared heretical, he did so in part because he thought they had purposely omitted the filioque from the creed. And Pope Adrian had to explain to him, no, 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 this is okay, this is how it actually is. In fact, what most non-polemical church fathers and theologians have agreed on is that for most part, it doesn't matter whether it was in the creed or not. At least, we can speak in very broad terms that this is the case. We don't have the time to go into every little detail about the filioque controversy. Our understanding, like I said, of the procession of the Holy Spirit is, is too much to talk about in this context, but in the East and the West at this time were in most part in agreement. It was rather a matter of terminology rather than theology. Now, there are a ton of dogmatic theologians on both sides who could disagree, but and today there are some Eastern theologians who think that the filioque is fine, and there are others who strictly disagree, but to paint with a broad brush right now in 807 AD, it's not necessarily a huge deal. What was a huge deal was that it was being added to the creed almost unilaterally by the Western Church. You can't change the creed. You can't change the creed, especially uh, on your own. Only an ecumenical council can really do that. But the Franks and the Charlemagnes think that the opposite has occurred, that this is the true creed and that the East has changed the creed without an ecumenical council. And in 794, the council at Frankfurt had confirmed the filioque. Two of the attendants at that council were monks in Jerusalem, there were Frankish monks that had come to this council, and then now they were going to go back to Jerusalem. And when they did, they started singing the creed with the filioque. And they were beaten up by the Greek monks that they lived with for doing so. So they wrote to Pope Leo asking for a dogmatic treatise which could explain that there wasn't a problem here. He obliged, and he sent the document to the Eastern Church and forwarded the letter from the monks to Charlemagne. Charlemagne then said, well, let's have a crack at this ourselves. And he called a council at Aachen in 809, which again confirmed the use of the filioque. In 810, Pope Leo received the report of Aachen, 
And while he confirmed all the dogmatic teaching of the council, he said, still, we shouldn't add the filioque to the creed. It's just going to upset people. It's unnecessary, etc. He even wrote out the creed himself without the filioque in Latin and in Greek on two large sh silver shields, and he then hung them on either side of the entrance to St. Peter's, which shows this is how important he thinks it is that the original creed be said. Now, two more quick things. First, towards the end of his reign, Charlemagne decided that his son, Louis the Pious, would succeed him as emperor. So he crowned him co-emperor in Aachen in 813. Now, this really upset the Pope, who was already fed up because of the whole filioque debacle. But now, how could Charlemagne unilaterally crown his son without papal consent or approval? Now, Charlemagne died in 814, and Louis the Pious took over as emperor, but he did not have a good relationship with Leo III. And second, toward the end of Leo's life, more plots arose against him in Rome, and there seemed to have been another assassination attempt. Leo dealt with this himself, getting help from local leaders rather than from Charlemagne or Louis the Pious. Historians seem to think that this was a deliberate choice, asserting some independence from the Frankish rulers. Leo III died on June 12, 816, after over 20 years as Pope. He was buried in St. Peter's Basilica and was canonized by Pope Clement X in 1673. He was succeeded by the 97th Pope, Stephen IV, and we will talk about him next week. Thanks for listening to Habemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com. There you can find all our different shows. You can also donate if you like the show by clicking the donate button. Find us also on iTunes where you can subscribe or leave a review. That always helps out. Thanks and God bless you.